Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have sent to me uh, in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Uh, so if you leave questions in the comment section, I will pick them up, get them in my queue. Uh, but the best way to do it is to send them to me by email. Um, okay, guys, welcome to the show. I want to thank everybody uh, watching for their channel support and all of that. Uh, a viewer uh, asked me to remind all of you, and I thought to myself, yeah, I probably should promote this as well. I have my book, Scientology A to Zenu, An Insider's Guide to What Scientology is Really All About, uh, out there on Amazon. You can see it here on the screen. And if you would like a signed copy of that book, I am more than happy to write an inscription and signature for you and send it to you. I only have about three or four copies of the book left physically here before I would have to order more. Um, so anyway, if you contact me by email, let me know your address. We can work out the details of that. I think I, you know, it's like $25 rather than $20 uh, for the signature, but then you got to pay shipping and handling on all that. So anyway, just putting that out there for you guys, and I can arrange for that. And, uh, of course, I want to uh, promote supporting the channel through Patreon, PayPal, etc. Uh, also, I want to encourage everybody to, uh, that may be new to the channel or maybe checking things out here, uh, that there is a tremendous amount of evergreen content. In other words, videos that are always good. They're not timed. They're not uh, no good anymore. They're, they're, they're still perfectly good to watch. And very, very useful for cult recovery, cult education, and understanding what coercive control is all about. That, at the end of the day, is what this channel is about, and um, and certainly about cult recovery, my own, and trying my best to try to help other people along in their process. So, um, peruse the channel, uh, check out the podcasts, check out the um, the videos out here, the, the, the playlists, all of it is here for you, uh, always. All right, and with that, let's get on with your questions. Michael Yoder, in your opinion, from all your studies, do you think there's a tipping point at which a benign group can become a destructive cult? What might that look like, and how can we watch for any particular signs? Yes, uh, thank you for this question, Michael. It's a great one. And there are all kinds of signs we can watch for and uh, be aware of when we're getting involved with a group and it starts maybe moving toward a more extreme version of itself or it starts promoting ideals that are maybe uh, different or even like the polar opposite of what it initially was promoting. Or maybe it appears that, you know, things start appearing that were not present or self-evident at the beginning and now you go deeper and deeper in and things are starting to appear that you're like wait a minute I don't know that I agreed to this part <laughs> you know and as that if that seriously if that happens and it happens again and it happens again you you might start you know scratching your head a little bit and go and questioning the motives and intentions of the group you're part of um, because transparency openness honesty um, you know here are the rules here's what we're doing here's what this group is about here is what we're trying to accomplish and any group you know if we kind of bring it back down to brass tacks so to speak any group that you're ever going to be part of you're going to join or be part of because you there's something you want out of that group or there's something you can give to that group or there's something some skill or some service or some ability or something that you provide to that group that will help it in its 
ends accomplishing its purposes. And you should be clear when you join any group, club, activity, anything at all, what it is you're joining. What is this activity really? Not what does it say it is, but what is it really? What does it do? Not just what does it say it does. This is where Google searches, Yelp reviews, you know, all the stuff that we post all over social media. I mean, there's no shortage of just raw data out there with, you know, to find out about you know, just about any activity people are becoming part of these days. Red flags, you know, there's a, there's a difference, I suppose, between toxic or, um, how do I want to say this? You know, there are problematic or extreme members of any group anywhere. People who just take it too far. They, they, they get over-involved. But a cult is where, the, is where the leadership of that group is encouraging that, wants that, and promotes extremist thinking and, and, and really over-the-top kind of activity. And it become, that's where that codependency comes from. So you can have a group that looks and sounds and acts like a bunch of crazy people and you go, what the hell is this all about? And maybe you're just looking at a group of the most extreme versions of that activity. We see this all the time in the culture wars and on social media. We see really bad representatives of people who are, or groups who are trying to bring about social justice, social change, legal change, um, you know, law enforcement change, government change, ideological change, any kind of change, really. Um, and, and any effort at all by anybody anywhere to create change is going to be met with opposition. <laughs> it's just a fact, if you haven't figured that part out yet, right? Anybody, any good cause, any bad cause, any cause at all is going to be opposed by somebody somewhere for some reason. But I want to, but getting back to cults, I want to stress that while you can see bad behavior, toxic people, people who will tear your head off the second you disagree with them, that doesn't necessarily mean that the group that they're in is a cult. They could just be an asshole. And, you know, we are surrounded in this world by assholes. So it's important that we differentiate uh, assholes as individuals versus groups of assholes together. <laughs> uh, anyway, I just wanted to make that point that just because you're seeing you know, bad behavior or even cult-like behavior out of an individual doesn't necessarily reflect on the fact that that group that person's part of is absolutely a cult. Where you're, what you want to look for is you want to look for that what is the leadership or the the rule set or the belief set the, the dogma what is you know what are the core values what is the activities of the group what are they actually doing with those values and this will be very evident right in front of your eyes you don't have to go on deep dives into the you know stacks at the library to figure this out it's right in front of you generally speaking um but it does take a little bit of experience and a little bit of looking past what people are telling you. You know, you could walk into a church of Scientology, and if you just listen to what you're told and look at the promotional marketing pieces that are presented to you, you'll walk away with a very one-sided view of what the whole thing is about. So when I say it's right in front of you, I mean you do have to go look. You have to go talk to people. you got to go find out things. And so, uh, in other words, do your research. 
<laughs> a very dangerous phrase these days because people use it to mean to only go on a one-sided journey down the internet rabbit hole and see all the, you know, the magical, crazy information I'm going to give you and have your mind blown. And now you've done your research and you're all the way down the flat earth rabbit hole, right? And you believe that the earth is flat now. So that's not the kind of research I'm talking about, right? I mean, like actually legit publications, uh, vetted, um, you know, licensed publications, right? People who have to follow rules and reporting, things like that. Uh, and even then, right, cross-check, cross-check, cross-check all the time, right? Three different sources. Make sure they're not all saying the same thing because they all got their same, you know, news data from the, from the AP wire, right? So they're all just repeating the same thing. Um, you know, research, that's how you figure this stuff out. There really isn't any other, there isn't any other way around it. You know, I've advised people for years now that if you, that, that one of the best pieces of advice I can give you when it comes to staying out of a dangerous or coercive situation is to wait, stop, give yourself time to think about and look at what you're getting involved in. Well, this answer today is more detail about what you should be doing during that time. Because, you know, it's, it's one thing to wait for your emotions to change, and that's very necessary in order to change your thinking. Your emotions very, very much heavily affect how you think and what you think. I don't know if you know that or not, but they, they clearly do. You know, and when you are angry at somebody, you are thinking things about them that are very, very different than what you're thinking about them when you're happy with them. The emotions are what are changing your mind. And that is, uh, that's just, you know, cult recruitment 101. So you want to give yourself time for your emotions to change so you're not buying into something out of euphoria or how, because you're in the middle of some awe moment or experience and you're feeling great and this is the best group of people you ever met. Anyway, I'm, I'm straying a little bit from your from what you asked me here. Um, sorry about that. But in terms of, um, but I wanted to stress the thing about how just because you see extreme behavior in an individual doesn't mean the group is a cult. It could be a benign group that just has asshole members. So in investigating the group, you got to look into its activities as a group, its leadership, and what is it saying and what is it doing? Is there, you know, what is the past of this organization? What have they been involved in? Do they change? Do they grow? Or are they static? Is it the same group with the same values for the last 10, 20, 30 years? That's a red flag because progress and you know life is change progress is change and when things aren't changing they're trying to not progress and that's not always uh, necessarily a good thing so that's something to keep track of um, or watch for and the other thing is in terms of um, you know there's that boiling frog phenomena so there's 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 time entered into this it's very rare that a cult leader or a benign group is going to go off the rails in 24 48 hours it's not a light switch sort of thing it is a spectrum the leader or the the you know your charismatic cult leader man woman you know whatever um, often organically starts figuring out if he is okay 
if you have a group that's a benign group, the leader is a little bit iffy in terms of his moral foundations or his ability to deal with power and influence. And if you start giving people power and influence, whoever they really are, it's going to come out. And if what comes out starts moving over towards, you know, power and control and domination and you start seeing hypocrisy, you start seeing red flags of, wait a minute, he said last week that we can't do that. And now, you know, these little, these little bits, these little alarm bells that go off, they all, they all, we all hear them. Uh, you know, it, we, we, if we pay attention to them is the hard part. So if you start seeing these little these little changes that you didn't the, the the key to it is did you expect this was this predictable did you think this is where it was going to go or what's happening and most importantly are you comfortable with where it's going and what's happening and if you're not leave get out while you can because the more that you go along with and and sort of deny the red flags or negate them or say they're not ah that's not real that's not true <laughs> i wish i had listened to myself as a teenager when you know my little red flags were going off about scientology i i wish i had because they were i saw things and heard things that very very much alarmed me and disturbed me when i was first getting involved in scientology and I didn't have the good sense to stand up for myself and say, no, this isn't right. I'm not going to do this anymore. I, I failed that test. So, uh, you know, everything I'm sort of throwing out here right now is, a, is, is advice in an effort to, you know, get you to not repeat my mistake. Um, so pay attention to the red flags. Ask questions. This is another huge red flag indication, right, is can you ask questions? What questions are you allowed to ask? And if, you, and if they stop at a certain point where you can't question the leader or his intentions or objectives or goals or activities or past or present, if you can't question any of these things or they're, you know, that people are getting in your way or suddenly people are looking at you funny and you're getting this weird vibe, yeah, those are all red flags. So, um, so pay attention to those things. And, um, and that's really, those are the things that are going to tell you in the moment, you know, whether things are going in the right direction or the wrong direction. Okay. Anybody can have a bad day, any leader or uh, manager or supervisor or person that we grant authority to can certainly have a bad day or even a bad week. Don't let that be the cause for you leaving a group. These are the, these kind of things I'm talking about are, are dogmatic or group-wide or are more than just a bad conversation or two. It's, you know, it's deeper than that. It's 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 a it has it's a bigger deal than that. Um, you know, one day you you sign up with, you know, the um, uh, you join a cookie tasting group <laughs> and and the rule is that you know in order for everybody to keep their health and everybody to you know to to stay fit or to stay uh, in there, you know just uh, to, to stay uh, sane or whatever, we're all only going to eat uh, five cookies a visit or something right and then suddenly, uh, next, you know, a week or two or three or a month or two or three into this thing, uh, suddenly it's, oh, no, no, it's actually 10 cookies and you have to eat five, right? And suddenly there's a bait and switch. There's a change. There's like this, wait a minute, what? 
I, I, I didn't see this coming. I didn't sign up for this. Uh, I guess it makes sense. Maybe, sort of. I don't know. Everybody else is going along with it. And meanwhile, what's happening is everybody else is looking at you and everybody else too, right? Everybody's like kind of got these little alarm bells going off, but nobody will say anything unless somebody steps up and does something. You know, it's usually like that. Um, so you got to be care. You know, be that person, right? Be the be the squeaky wheel. Be the noisy, you know, cog in the system. And it, it's it will very um, it will very rarely do you wrong to be that guy. So uh, I don't know. I, I'm I'm just shotgunning uh, stuff out here, but I hope this answer helps a little bit, Stefan. What would be the proper steps when there is a such a security breach, such as the infiltration by a Quebec reporter in Canada recently? This went on CBC Radio Canada and has 611,000 views at last count. Surely someone is doing hard labor. I'm also curious if any SO staff were in that org, would they be RPF'd? Oh, Canada, indeed. Do you think there could be other similar attempts in other nations or by English-speaking journalists? It's not easy to get by that meter check. Okay, well, thank you very much for this question. And yeah, that Canada story was really quite something. There, there, a reporter went in and infiltrated a church, a church of Scientology as though he was signing up for services. And they went back again and again. Uh, it wasn't just a one-off and they had secret recordings. And they even went to uh, sign up for the church's detox program, which is total bullshit and dangerous for you, by the way. I don't want to mince words about this. The Church of Scientology's detox, which is called the purification program, is dangerous, and you should not do it. Uh, that being said, um, they went in there and made like they were somebody who was interested in doing this and signed up for it and got sent to the doctor and the doctor uh, was not aware of the medical problems with this thing. And once they were made aware of it, they were like, oh, wow, yeah, no, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be doing this, right? And it was quite an interesting investigative report. It was great journalism in terms of uh, that kind of style of journalism. Now, in terms of Scientology's response and what would be the proper steps, well, it's interesting how we know from my talks with Jeff Beaumont, PTS for Life, and other people in Canada over the years that the majority of the Sea Org in Canada apparently are OSA. They are working for the Office of Special Affairs already, and they're running around putting out the fires and, and trying to prevent the fires like this, the public relations fires, uh, from blowing up and becoming a big problem. And somebody certainly did fall down on the job. Um, Scientology is a destructive cult. They can't help it. That, that's what and who they are. So when you so OSA, the Office of Special Affairs, can only put so much of a glossy coat on that, but you, you can't. You know, if you if you if you know how to beat an e-meter, and anybody could, you just don't give it any importance or assign any any significance to what's going on, and uh, you know, and, and just think good thoughts, happy thoughts, while you're on the holding the cans, and you'll be fine. You know, there are reactions that happen on an e-meter in, in response to your emotional reactions. Uh, that doesn't mean the e-meter is uh, accurate in what Scientology says it does or that it's doing anything like what Scientology says it's doing. It doesn't. Um, but if you're just chill and calm and uh, kind of like a lie detector, actually, it would be the same advice. 
be relaxed, be chill, hold the cans. Nothing's going to happen, right? It's not a secret weapon, and it can't peer into your soul. Uh, so any journalist, anybody could theoretically go into a church and pass a meter check, no problem. Um, it really shouldn't be viewed as this, uh, the, the, this big challenge. Um, anyway, um, so I do think that other reporters or other investigators might possibly do the same thing. And they always have fun kind of going in and infiltrating Scientology at its lowest levels. But other than what, you know, uh, the Canada, the, that Canadian report, because it focused on the purification rundown and went and talked to the doctor and actually got him on camera saying, duh, 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 I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, that was great. That was really the good part. The fact that Scientology is delivering pseudoscientific garbage is hardly news and hardly newsworthy, to be honest. It's what would be newsworthy is what the hell is the government doing about it or what are police and regulatory bodies doing about it? Uh, because right now they're doing pretty much next to nothing about it. And that's the newsworthy part. It's not how off the rails Scientology is. This is so well established already that it's hardly news. Um, I'd like to see a lot more news on the side of who and what is doing something about this stuff. Um, because that's that's where we need a lot more activity, really. Um, and I'm, yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll avoid from saying anything further than that. Um, the RPF is no longer exists, apparently, in the Sea Org, so nobody's RPF'd over this. Um, there may well be somebody doing hard physical labor or punishment or disciplinary actions because of it, though. That's That would be almost a given, especially in the world of Scientology. Um, I mean, any PR flap with any company, somebody's going to be in trouble. And the kind of trouble people get into when they're in a destructive cult is physical abuse and, and, a, and a whole... Uh, you know, laundry list of, of psychological torments and manipulations. So, um, so I don't, you know, so I feel for those people. It's, it, it sucks to, to know that that's the case, but it, it probably is. Somebody's head is on a pike over that. That's what they call it in Scientology, of course, is they put somebody's head on a pike. They're, they're in trouble now and everybody knows they're in trouble. So they don't make the same mistake kind of thing. Um, I don't know. That's about all I can really say about all of that. It's encouraging to see real investigative journalism being done of Scientology versus the, you know, cheap clickbaity crap that so many people get up to that really don't help or advise much of anybody on anything. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of activity going on right now that is, you know, a lot of noise. And, you know, is it going to bring Scientology to its knees? I, I doubt it. Um we see noise in the past. We see so many articles about going in and doing a personality test and, ooh, look at how crazy that was. And it, who cares, right? It's not, that's not where the abuse is happening in Scientology. Um, the abuse is happening at the top and the abuse is happening in the auditing sessions and the abuse is happening in the classrooms of Scientology and in the Sea Org installations of Scientology, the places that never get on camera. That's where the abuse is happening. Um, so that's where we should be really directing our efforts as far as I'm concerned. But anyway, thanks for asking. Oscar Q. Zilch. What books did Hubbard ask that his followers read beyond the ones he authored? All right. Thank you very much for asking me this question. Um, there is a book, uh, there's a list rather of um, all the books or uh, publications that L. Ron Hubbard ever mentioned in 
any of his lectures or writings. They put a full list together. He compiled it many, many years ago. And a copy or two copies of every one of those publications is generally looked for or hunted down or found at used bookstores or somewhere to put into the uh, one of the org libraries at every Church of Scientology that gets renovated. They, they this LRH recommended list of books now the or LRH referred books I should say he didn't recommend all these books he just referred to them at some point and that's the closest thing I have to an answer I don't have that list it's pages and pages long actually it's it's quite a long extensive list but I remember it included things like the Golden Bow or Bow. Um, it included Science and Sanity by Korzybski. Um, he, let's see, what else did he refer to often? He referred to Mary Baker Eddy's books. He referred to old occult books. He referred to magic books. He referred to, um, he referred to um, Buckminster Fuller's work uh, often. I called him Bucky as though he was friends with him or something. Um I'm pretty sure Buckminster Fuller would have had nothing but contempt for L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> if I, I mean, I could be wrong, but that's my thinking on it. Um, Buckminster Fuller is the one who invented the geodesic dome, by the way, and, and, and other things. He was quite the inventive personality and quite the genius engineer. He was, uh, he was somebody L. Ron Hubbard you know, wished he was, uh, wished he could be. Um, and, of course, uh, you have a reference here on the Wikipedia page on L. Ron Hubbard to him recommending Alistair Crowley's book, The Master Therion. So, of course, Hubbard did speak highly of Alistair Crowley in his lectures all the way back to 1952 and called Alistair Crowley his good friend. And Hubbard talked um, as though he really did have experience and knowledge of this about the, sub the subject and history of magic and, he, and the occult. And he was quite into this stuff. So he didn't drop this stuff in every lecture. It's, a, it's only in a few. But when he did, he, he spoke knowledgeably and highly of Aleister Crowley and of the occult and hypnotism and magic. Um, so he, you know, and, and that's, uh, that kind of gave maybe earlier listeners of Scientology some um, some push in that direction before Hubbard started inventing rules for the church about how you don't look at anything else than the Scientology stuff. Uh, you know, it's only Scientology that's got the goods. Any, and, uh, any other practices or external influences, I'm using air quotes here, um, are heavily, heavily discouraged in Scientology. It's a closed system. And that's the thing about destructive cults is they, they don't really recommend other people's works that often unless they're trying to subsume that work into the cult dogma itself, like Hubbard did with uh, Korzybski and certain other people's works. Um, so, I don't know. That's what I can uh, sort of say about that. Hope that's of, of some interest. Steve Wood, why does Scientology go to such inordinate lengths to recover escaped Scientologists? Because it's obvious they don't want to be there. What's the upside for Scientology? Okay, Steve, um, I've, I've addressed this before in terms of how Scientology thinks about leaves and blow-offs and people blowing, that's what they call it, right? When somebody takes off without authorization or goes AWOL, they consider it a blow. Oh, he blew. He took off, right? He blew. 
um, you know, don't blow, man, don't blow, right? It's, a, it's, this, it's this verb in Scientology for leaving uh, without authorization or without okay. And if somebody were to take off from Scientology, we've heard for many, many years now, many stories of Scientologists, uh, especially Sea Org members, being tracked down and gone after and, and recovered. They want them back. Now, the reasons for that are pretty obvious because, of course, they're going to go out and who knows what they're going to do. Those are people who are now demonstrating they're not under control and they need to be gotten back under control because at the end of the day, the Church of Scientology, like every other destructive cult, is all about control. That's how it makes the money. That's how it accomplishes its, its purposes and goals is through totalist control. So if it's not got control of its members... Something's wrong. The machine is not running right, and we need to fix that. Now, for the individual members, that's this sort of structural, social group answer. Now, from the individual level, at the individual members' level and, with, and what they're thinking, I'm going to draw a different analogy for you that I, that I hope will work to explain the mindset of individual securities and OSA and Scientology people and what they're thinking when they're, when they're trying to go recover somebody who has taken off or blown. They're thinking about this person in two different ways. One of them is that this person is a threat to themselves and others because they are unstable and have taken off and violated their agreements and their morals and, their, and, and they've, you know, they, they, they broke their agreements. And so something happens, something must be wrong, and Scientologists, every one of them, believe that this person only took off because of their own overts, their own sins, right? Their own misdeeds. This is the only reason, according to the Scientologist, because L. Ron Hubbard says this, that this person's taken off. So... It's not their fault as such, right? It's like, yeah, it is their fault, but they got to get them back so they can fix that because we can fix that. We know what to do to fix it, see? We just need to get them on an e-meter and get them to confess their crimes and, and their mind will change and everything will be better after that. That's one reason. That's one way the Scientologists are thinking about this person. Another way they're thinking about this person and probably more relatable to to you and me and thee and everybody who's listening to this, drug addicts. If somebody was at a rehab and they took off, their friends, their family, maybe the people who work at the rehab, but certainly people who care about that person would do everything in their power to try to get that person back to rehab to finish what they started. Because they see it as a, as a net positive for this person. You were in the place that was fixing you. You were in the right place. And you took off. And we need to get you back to that place. Now, this is assuming, of course, that the rehab is not abusive or some horrible place, right? I mean, there are different reasons people leave. But here I'm obviously referring to the idea that the guy took off because he couldn't deal with the drug withdrawal symptoms or he, you know, just blew up or, 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 right? And he doesn't want to do the rehab anymore, even though, you know, if somebody has a true drug problem, that is what they need. And it might be tough to get through, but, you know, that's why we have friends and family and compassion and care and all of that is get through it and get through it with help. 
So the Sea Org members who go out to recover blown Scientologists look at them the same way. In fact, there was a drill, a practice exercise, a role-playing exercise that a Sea Org recruiter invented, um, which he had us recruiters, when I was doing Sea Org recruitment, we would practice this with role play, and we call it's called a drill in Scientology. And what we would drill is your friend is a drug addict, and he's about to get on this bus. And when you know if he goes off on this bus, he's going to die. He's going to go off, and he's going to get drugs because that's what he says he's about to go do, and he's going to kill, and he's going to die. You know it. What do you say to stop him? You need to get him to stop, and you can't touch him. What do you do, right? And now you have to create this powerful speech or communication, or you somehow have to somehow relate to this guy in such a way that you get him to not get on that bus, because if you don't, you know, you have this one shot to save this guy's life start right and 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 that's the drill and the and the the obviously the urgency there right is exaggerated uh for on purpose for the purposes of the role play to get the recruiter to really generate this necessity this urgent need to save this person's life and the obvious implication here is that by getting somebody to join the Sea Org or get somebody into Scientology or bring somebody back to Scientology, if we extend it to this, you're saving their life. And if you give up, if you stop, that's it. It's game over for them. Right? And that's taking full responsibility, quote unquote, for this person. That's how Scientologists think about it. That's how we were told to think about it. That's how it was described to us. Um, so that's how they're approaching this. That's the mindset with which they're approaching this. It's do or die. It's us versus them. It's all in. It's extreme, right? And all these things that I, that I, that I talk about all the time, that's what it is. And, um, and that's the headspace they put themselves in, but they, but everybody is always the hero of their own story of their own life. Always. So you have to, when you want to answer, ask a question about, why do Scientologists blah, 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 think, for, think to yourself, well, okay, what would make that activity a heroic act? What would make this a good thing? I'm looking at it and I see it's a bad thing. I see this is not a good idea. But what would have to exist in the minds of the people doing this in order for it to you know, make sense in order for it to make sense to them as something good to do, right? That will make these kinds of things a little more easy to understand. You might not necessarily come up with the right answer in your imagination of trying to figure out what is it that makes this heroic, but at least you'll get yourself more in the headspace of the cult members or people who are in the extreme headspace. And it's really a great little exercise to do. It's very educational. Um, to to try to empathize with or try to figure out what how, how is it possible this person thinks this is okay, right? And often, if you ask them, they'll tell you. By the way, uh, and just in normal day to day life of things, and even cult members will tell you if you listen. 
So um, anyway, just putting that out there as further, uh, you know, whatever on this question, but I hope it all helps. Thanks for asking, Steve. Mary Elena Simon, what are your thoughts on PTSI as opposed to PTSD? Okay, thank you very much for this question. This was interesting because I had actually not heard too much about this until you asked me the question. I went and looked it all up. And um, we're, we're going to get into a little bit of psych stuff uh, right now because this is a change that is happening in the world right now uh, over the last year or so uh, based on research that was done and surveys that were done um, on the topic of the sort of stigmatization that is connected with the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. People don't like the word disorder. When they, when they hear the word disorder or when it's assigned to them, apparently, and this is all news to me, I just learned about all this, um, they really, a, whole, a, per, a, a large percentage of people feel that this is something that is incurable that they're stuck with something for the rest of their life, that there's nothing they can do about it. And not only that, but there's a social stigmatization that occurs, and there's a professional level of problem that enters in when we're dealing with people in the military, law enforcement, or other or essential services who have a PTSD condition. Now, this is not a life-debilitating, end-of-life condition or terminal for somebody. PTSD means you have trauma from a traumatic episode, and that needs to be dealt with, and there are lots and lots of ways to deal with it. But we try to encapsulate or, or put together, well, what are all the problems and issues that people have when they have suffered from a major traumatic episode for them in their life? Well... That's PTSD. You know, if you, if you have those symptoms and conditions, nightmares and terrors and anxiety and problems and issues, as a result of this whole, whole list of things that go with PTSD, well, those are non-optimum in, in a person's life, and, and preferably we don't want that, those kind of reactions and triggers. And so therapy and various other, you know, treatment uh, modes and modalities and all that have been put together. And people should avail themselves of that. But often they don't. And often they don't because they are not either, they are not well-informed or educated on this thing, or they do get educated on it, but then somebody lays a bunch of crap on them about it anyway, and then they believe that rather than the education. And and they can get really crazy, weird ideas about all of this. And it's probably made 20 times worse by the bozos in their life or around them in their professional and personal life who don't understand it, never took the time to look into it or, or know anything about it, and they hear the word disorder or PTSD at all or anything connected with any kind of psychiatric or psych psychological you know, mishap or problem, and they assume the guy's crazy. Oh, that's the, you're. Oh, you, you, there's something wrong with you then, right? Or they just they, they just invalidate it, or they say it doesn't exist. It's all just a bunch of psychiatric mumbo jumbo crap. And you don't have to listen to that. You know, drown your sorrows with a beer or a whiskey or something. That's all you need. I mean, the, the whole spectrum of just bullshit nonsense that goes on around psychiatric disorders and psychological problems is it, it itself. There's just, you know, there's just so much written about it because it's so stupid what human beings do to other human beings when this kind of thing comes up. So, 
rant. <laughs> um, so let me read you a little bit about this from a study from May 2023. Um, this was uh, published at the National Library of Medicine, um, ncbi.nlm.nih.gov. So this is pretty official stuff. Um, survey reveals that renaming, renaming post-traumatic stress disorder to injury from disorder to injury, PTSD to PTSI, would reduce stigma. And I'm just going to go over the, the, um, a little bit of the abstract here on this paper. This is an academic paper. Self-stigmatization, right? Invalidating yourself, negative self-talk, negative you know, uh, self-imagery, has an estimated prevalence of 41.2% among adults with post-traumatic stress disorder. 41% of people with PTSD give themselves a hard time about it in one degree or another. Since the name was introduced, uh, the name PTSD was introduced, arguments have been made that the term disorder may discourage patients from revealing their condition and seeking care. We hypothesize that renaming PTSD to post-traumatic stress injury, PTSI, would reduce the stigma associated with PTSD and improve patients' likelihood of seeking medical help. So this is so bad that people will actually stop themselves from getting any help just because of the label and the misunderstandings and social nonsense that goes along with it. Uh, they did an anonymous survey between 2021 and 2022 of 3,000 adult participants. 15 were clinic patients and visitors. Um, out of the 1,025 subjects responded to the survey, 50% female, 49% male, and almost all of them had been diagnosed with uh, PTSD. Over two-thirds of the respondents agreed that a name change to PTSI would reduce the stigma associated with the term PTSD. Over half the respondents agreed that it would increase their hope of finding a solution and their likelihood of seeking medical help. The cohort diagnosed with PTSD was most likely to believe in the impact of a name change. So that is basically what we're looking at here when we talk about the differences between PTSD and PTSI. It's a shift in where the injury occurs, so to speak, because PTSI talks about nerve damage and brain injury and, the, and body injury and such. Um, and so, you know, there you go. And uh, there's controversy and debate over this already. Um, because you can see, you know, less than half of the people who are diagnosed with this have this issue or problem of not wanting to go seek help or injure or, or get assistance. Um, but more than half are then not doing that to themselves, which is good. But there's such a high percentage of uh, people in that minority that, um, that, it, that it, you know, might be a good idea to go about changing something about this. This also enters in, of course, to the broader problem of um, mental health illiteracy in the United States and all over the world. Um, 
it's, you know, it's a growing, anyway, there's a bigger debate to be had there. There's a much larger conversation to be had about psychiatry and the medical model and psychology and how, how good it's doing and the over-reliance on psychotropic medications, the fact that general medical doctors, not just psychologists or psychiatrists, not just psychiatrists rather, but medical doctors can themselves prescribe psychotropic medications and pharmaceuticals, which is a, a, a horrible decision to have made um, because it created a, a gross, gross, uh, you know, misdiagnosis problem. General medical practitioners do not understand psychiatric disorders to the degree that they should be able to, to prescribe pharmaceutical uh, solutions to that. Uh, but, you know, you ask the pharmaceutical companies and they're all about more product being pushed out, you know, on a daily basis. So, anyway, we could go on and on with all of the corollaries of this for a very, very long time. And there are a lot of pros and cons and ups and downs to all of this. Lots. This is not any kind of, so, you know, settled science or figured out stuff. Um, but in terms of the direct answer to the direct question today, I think that based on the research that I could find on this, that it would make sense to support the change to PTSI rather than PTSD just because of the stigmatization issue. So um, that gives you a little bit more, you know, a little bit of window into the world of mental health, how it is actually practiced and done. And uh, I learn something new every day. So thanks for asking me this question. There you go. All right, everybody. So that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me blabber on at a mad rate about all this. Uh, Please do help me grow this channel. I'm, you know, I'm not all about numbers. I am about helping you. So I do want to be clear that I'm not craving or looking at my you know, YouTube subscribers or my YouTube views as like the, the, the thing that measures my value or worth. What I want to tell you guys is that I'm here for you personally, individually. And if you need help, you need somebody to talk to, you need some consultation regarding coercive control, cult situations, post-cult life and recovery, anything having to do with any of that, I can help. I can also assist in um, any other situations having to do with coercive control. That is my field of expertise now. So uh, you can contact me personally uh, through my website, mncriticalthinking.com, or contact me by email at askchrisshelton at uh, gmail.com and um, get in touch and see if we might uh, connect. And if so, I'd be happy to help. All right. Uh, Support the show. Support the channel. Keep watching. Subscribe. All that being said, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.